This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Specifically in where we're going today, we're going to see that our new life in Christ is sustained by the provisions that Christ gives us. We live on what he gives And he gives to us what we need. And he supplies to us what we need. And and this is a consistent teaching of scripture. The Lord is faithful to give. He's faithful to supply our needs. Not according to what we have, but according to riches that are found in Christ Jesus. I remember six years ago, it was six years ago, this past April, so just over six years, I quit my job as a youth pastor and I started working seven jobs in two different cities in two different states, trying to get my family here and start the Axis Church. It was a lot of work, it was crazy. And the Lord provided in a lot of different ways. We even had people giving us groceries like every Monday. You remember this, Jill? Like people felt sorry for us because they're like, that guy is crazy, he's not taking care of his family. We have to feed those kids. Like they, we have to care for them. Because we were just, I mean, my first monies that I would ever make would just go to pay insurance, which was a lot of money for a family. And man, it seemed like so much work, but God was continue, continuing to be faithful. And it came to the point where we had to sell our home there in Harrisburg, North Charlotte, uh, in North Carolina. And uh, man, we needed $10,000 at closing. $10,000 at closing to someone who doesn't really have a job. He's just working seven part-time gigs. I know some of you know what that's like. You're doing your best to make it. Imagine having a lot of kids behind you that you're trying to take care of at the same time. And we were praying. We were asking Lord to, to help us. And we were asking him with our actions to help us because it's like, we're really needing you. It's, and there's proof. Well, $10,000 came up for closing. And, and we were, it was a Saturday before closing on Tuesday. And it was we had at that time raised like and worked for $3,000 cash to give at closing. Well, that still leaves how much? $7,000. $7,000 that we had to bring, and there was nothing that we had left. And so I'm on the phone with our closing agent, our, our real estate, uh, what's the word? Real estate agent, I guess, yeah. And, um, and I was talking to her, and she was like, so you're going to have this, this $10,000 at closing, right? And I'm like, um, yes. She goes, do you have it? No, we don't have it. I have $3,000. She's like, that's not going to work. I need you to have it. We've, we've got this set up. You know, we'll, like, do you have this money? I need to hear you say yes. I'm like, we will have that money. She's like, I need to hear you tell me, like, we have the money. And she's like, okay, that's what I need to hear. Thank you. And uh, so she went about her, her business, and we met up Tuesday. Something wonderful happened on Sunday. We drove into Nashville that Saturday. You remember this, Jill? Yes, it was crazy what took place here. And um, I had a, after, after the service, we, we went to a church here that's been faithful to support us uh, through the history of the church. And uh, in their building, it would have been the equivalent to this section right here. After the service, a man called me to himself. I, I met him maybe once or maybe twice before this point. Um, I, I couldn't remember his name. Um, I didn't know him really that well at all. And uh, he came up to me and said, so I hear you have a need for closing costs at your home. I'm like, yeah, 
I do. And uh, he's like, well, how much is it? I'm like, man, you have to ask Jill, which is always my answer to calendaring or to money. It's like, we need to talk through it because I don't know. If I say something, I'm going to mess this thing up. So it's like, let me talk to Jill first. And he's like, well, just, you know, what do you think it is? I'm like, uh, I know that 7,200 will get it. Like, I'm pretty sure that'll cover everything. He's like, are you sure that'll cover it? I'm like, yeah, that'll cover it. He says, okay. And this man, more than twice my age, Tears start coming down his cheek. He pulls into his shirt pocket, and it was already made out to Jeremy Rose, and Memo was closing North Carolina, and he'd already signed it. So all he did was write in 7200.00 and write out $7,200. He folds it and puts it in my pocket, in my shirt, and says, move from North Carolina, get to Nashville, and do what God's called you to do. And I was speechless. It takes a lot to get me that way. But I was simply like, I, thank you. Like when somebody that you love gives you something, like it, it feels right. When someone that you don't really know at all blesses you in a way that you haven't ever experienced, it's, it's hard to know how to respond, what to respond. Thank you seems so shallow. But the Lord was faithful to supply our need. And we showed up at closing like we had won the lottery because we didn't have the money. And we're just like, now we have it. And so we're like strutting in there like, yeah, here's $10,000, you know, with 200 to spare. This is great, you know. We saw the Lord provide. We, we, we saw how he took care of us. So I say that to say that today through our time together, we're going to see how deeply God cares for us and our needs. And he promises to provide for his children. He's a good dad who gives good gifts. And often he gives us these things and meets our needs in ways that we don't always understand, but they are always what is best. That's true. However, we determine what need is, right? Like we think a need is this when it's really just a want. It's really not even a, a decent want. But we talk about it as, I need this. And I'm a parent. I know how often we can miss what is a want and a need. You need oxygen. You need water. And this is how I parent, by the way. I go to the extremes, you know, to point out how ridiculous something is. But, but not only are we off there sometimes in distorting what a true need is, Often we think that we know what's best for ourselves and we can't fathom Jesus providing for us outside of the desired expectation that we have because we know what's best for us. So if we want money, we just want our bank account to grow. We don't want to see him provide through going fishing and finding money in the mouth of a fish. That doesn't make sense. We don't want that. That's, that's ridiculous. That's, that takes too much faith. That's, that's crazy to actually think that can happen. That's called faith. And we see how he responds to this. You know, in my story, closing seemed to be a big deal, right? I mean, it seemed to be a big need in order for us to continue to follow God's leading to Nashville. I want to be obedient to follow him to Nashville to plant a church. Therefore, closing must happen. And it did. But it didn't have to happen like that. He could have not delivered that money. And he would have still been good and still been working out things, teaching me things, meeting a greater need that I have. And he's still God and he's still faithful. He's still to be trusted. So if your theology only leaves you room to see God move in notions that only you can determine or paradigm that you have, and he can't provide outside of those expectations you're putting your limits 
on something that is limitless, on someone that is limitless. And this is at the heart of the, of the passage that we have today. So let's look here in verse 24 as we continue through this passage. So they, they come to Capernaum, and the collectors of the two drachma tax, they come up to Peter and they, they ask, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now there's, there's different co- collectors, there's different tax collectors. You know the notorious crook collectors like Matthew who was changed, right? They embezzled money, they stole money, like it was a pretty rough crowd. This is a different crowd. This is, these are tax collectors that are obedient to follow out the commands given to Moses, specifically in Exodus chapter 30, where they're collecting money to help take care of the temple. It's a temple tax. So we can assume, it's, it's okay to assume here that these were decent guys. They didn't have a notorious, historical, notorious reputation for being crooks or frauds. They were honest men who wanted to take care of the temple of God. They loved God and wanted to take care of his temple. And this, this tax here itself was, it was fixed. It was a, it was a fixed uh, offering of a half shekel. Two drachma equaled a half shekel. And there wasn't a coin during this time for a half shekel. It was only a full shekel, which was four drachma. And that's why often two men would go pay this tax. That's why it made sense even for Jesus and Peter to, to pay the tax together because it was four representing for two men. And this tax was only required for men who were 20 years or older. And it was given once. It was required once, and then it could be given voluntarily after that as one wanted to give to help the temple or as one wanted, like a rabbi, would model what a good giver is and what a good caregiver of the temple is. He would model for his Talmud, his disciples, to follow. He would give them a picture of what it looks like to be generous, though it wasn't required. And then the priests didn't have to give it all because they were the ones in charge of the temple itself. And so Jesus here, he, he has these tax collectors come up to Peter. He's not present, but he knows about it. It's, it's, it's interesting. And when these tax collectors come up to Peter, they ask him a question. And to use uh, our vernacular today uh, in the way that it's written in the original Greek, it's written with an expected answer on the end. So it's basically, it would be like them saying, Hey, Peter, your teacher pays the temple tax, right? I mean, they they assumed he was a a decent rabbi, one who wanted to model generosity and model for his followers. It wasn't required, but it's noble. It's honorable for, for a rabbi to continue to give. You know, they don't have a reason not to believe that he didn't give the temple tax regularly, but Jesus wasn't the ordinary rabbi, and he didn't always follow their cultural norms of the religious people. And so they did have a question about it. Regardless, they asked Jesus, they ask if Jesus pays his tax and his men pay their tax. And Peter answers, yes, extremely strong, extremely affirmative. And verse 25, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, even though we're not told he was part of this conversation, but Jesus speaks first to Peter before Peter can tell Jesus there was a question about the tax. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? It's believed here that Peter spoke out of turn in assuming. He, he assumed that Jesus spoke the tax, and so he, he wasn't confident that he did, but he spoke as if he did. It's like, oh, absolutely, right? 
You know, this is kind of how Peter, which doesn't surprise us if you understand a lot of his personality. But Jesus was aware of a conversation that Peter had with these tax collectors. And again, I think this is a subtle way of Matthew recording for you and recording for me that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God, of God, sent from God for us. He's the promised one we're looking for. He knows things that he shouldn't otherwise know. He has wisdom and knowledge that the average person just simply does not have. And here he's proving without being a part of a conversation that he's aware of the conversation when he addresses that issue of tax. Look at verse 26. And so we're, you know, is it their sons or is it other people who pay the tax of the kingdom? He says, well, it's from others. Good job, Peter. He gets it right. And then Jesus says to him, well, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you're going to find a shekel. <laughs> I, can imagine, I can imagine Peter being like, okay, I'm down with fishing. Wait a minute, I'm going to find money in a fish? Like, really? And take that and give it to them for me and yourself. Which, despite flannel graph and VBS when we were growing up, that showed the disciples being very archaic and old and, and white-bearded, um, this is a text that many hold to to see that the disciples were actually very young because the only ones who paid the tax was Jesus and Peter. Peter, we know, of, was of age, and Jesus, we know right here, was approximately 32 years old, 33 years old. So it's just interesting to think the disciples were probably somewhere around 18 to 20, 18 to 19 years old. Um, and I, I hold to that particular view using this particular text. It's just interesting. Um, so here we have the Jesus using this example to say the kings of the earth, they, they don't tax their children. They tax others. God doesn't tax his children. Jesus is implying that, that he and the disciples, they're not required to pay this temple tax because they are sons of the kingdom. They belong to the Father. And here, Jesus is essentially freeing us, those who believe in his finished work. He's telling us, essentially, that we are free from the law as Jesus submits to the law himself in our place for us paying this tax. So Jesus is himself the fulfillment of the law that stands before us and condemns us. And, and leaves us looking for hope and a way out because we can't meet the requirements of the law. Jesus meets the requirements of the law. He upholds the law. He fulfills the law for us. And Jesus has great reason to not pay the temple tax. A number of reasons. The superior reason that I find here is that the temple represented God's presence on earth. But Jesus was God's presence and, and in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus has already clearly stated that something even greater than the temple is here. You know, the temple is, is what existed between fallen human, between sinful people and a perfect God. The temple was this liaison, this mediator of sorts, this, this building that held the, the presence of God. And it was a way of relating to God even as sinful people. And Jesus is saying that he's greater than this. He's going to fulfill the law and become the presence of God. He is the presence of God. He is now that new way of relating to the creator as the temple used to be. 
So why should Jesus pay for the symbol of something when he is the reality to which that pointed? He's the fulfillment even as he stands there removing that tax. But then Jesus goes ahead and he pays the tax so as to not cause other people to, to get a, cause a premature uprising and controversy. Because you see, Jesus is poised. This is his last journey into the Jerusalem area before his crucifixion. This is it. He's not going to go travel around much more. He's staying right here in this region. And his, his eyes are set on the cross. He's poised on what he must accomplish and the timing that it must be accomplished in. In paying this temple tax, though Jesus did not have to, even in this, Jesus is bearing our burden and living as our perfect representative. And every single thing Jesus did was magnificently on purpose. Everything. Everything he said, everything he did not say. Everything he did, everything he did not do. Every reaction, everything was magnificently, perfectly on purpose. And he's walking this, knowing that the timing of everything has to unfold a very certain way. He's not wanting to give an offense. Let's go ahead, let's pay this tax. But not to, not to give offense to them, he's telling him to go ahead, go ahead, Peter, and pay this. Now, to those of us who are in this room who believe Jesus, and, and, and we, our hope is placed in his finished work, that we look to him as Messiah and Savior, we are sons and we are daughters of God. We don't pay this money or tax to be invited into the people of God. We don't, we don't pay, we don't do anything here. We don't pay or invest money in order to be part of the family of God. The gospel is free. The gospel is free for us, though it was costly for Jesus. It was paid for by Jesus giving all of himself, not a tax of himself, not a, not a portion, not a percentage. He gave completely and totally all of who he was as an offering so that you could be made friends and family and no longer enemies and strangers. You're, you're no longer orphaned. You have been adopted. You are now son, daughter, heir with Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. It's freely for you. Just believe. Have faith in Jesus. He's good for it. And when we, when we enter life with Christ, when we enter into the gospel life, we, we live now in this life. The life that we now live is no longer lived in our strength. It's no longer lived merely in our resources, but in his strength and in his resources. And we're taught this here. And when, when we're tired of, of, of trying to live life, we're, and as, we, as we try to live life, we're just exhausted and we can't feel like we can't go on. We can't continue. We can't press in. We're not completely leaning into Christ and, and being content in the power that he gives and the strength that he provides and the resources that he gives to us. Even in want, even in need, even in abundance, having faith in him brings contentment. And this isn't my idea Paul says it in Philippians 4. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, 
I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's how. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me, through his strength. Not through Paul's strength, through the strength that Christ provides. And then he continues. Man, chapter 4 of Philippians is beautiful. If you're suffering, man, it's a beautiful chapter of encouragement and peace. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is a promise that we have. We no longer live our life alone in our own power, in our strength. He lives within us. It's no longer our resources that matter, but his, his provision. It's no longer limited to us. Rather, it's limitless now through him. And this is what the fish is about. I mean, this, when, when he says go fish and, and find a coin, Jesus isn't just showing off. This was telling them something. This was telling Peter and the other disciples something. He was teaching them something. He's proving and he's teaching Peter that Jesus isn't limited. If you need money, Jesus isn't just saying, oh, well, here, go. He's saying, no, I can provide through ways that would blow your mind if you just believe me. Jesus will do whatever is necessary to provide for his kingdom work. He will do whatever is necessary to provide for his children. He is a good daddy who gives good gifts according to what they need. And what I find interesting is that he meets Peter where he is. Peter, he was a fisherman. This isn't something he had to go learn to do. He used what Peter was accustomed to. He sends him to do what he knows how to do, and he sees Jesus provide supernaturally through Peter's ordinary work. I mean, Peter's, Peter's life and the life that, that we're called to live depends not upon us, but upon Jesus, upon his work and upon his provision. And through Jesus, we've become children of God, sons of the Father, daughters of the Father, and he doesn't tax us. He provides for us. God is our sufficient supplier. Do you believe that? Do you practically believe that? Do you believe that he can care for you? Do you believe that he can care for you better than you can care for yourself? Or can he only care for you in the way that you think you need to be cared for? He supplies mercy to the sufferer. He supplies atonement to sin. He saves us. He provides over and over and over again. His mercies are given to us new every morning. He provides daily what we need to live in order to serve him and to go on. There is nothing that we need that Christ cannot and does not give freely. He knows what our needs are better than what we know. Do you have faith the size of a mustard seed? Do you have faith to go fishing for what seems to be a ridiculous thing? Do you have faith to live expecting Jesus to provide as Peter is called to here? So when I consider this and, and I hear the sermon myself, 
I'm encouraged to have faith. I want to have faith. I, I want to trust. I would trust Jesus more in this situation if he said, hey, there's a rock over there. Go lift it up and you'll find some hidden stash that I've kept for my boys and you'll find enough tax. Go pay our drachma. Take care of it, Peter. It makes sense. It would make sense if he says, hey, Peter, um, we need some money. How about you go fishing? And uh, I don't know, within a couple you know, uh, draws with the net, you'll find enough fish to go sell at the market, and it's due by five, so you hustle, but you can get it, sell the fish, and pay our drachma tax. That makes sense to me. Does the wisdom of God and the way that he handles himself as he uses things in life to build our faith in him, so this is a faith builder for, for Peter, does how God provide for you, is it limited only into what you understand how something can happen? Or is there room for a God to do things that would blow your mind and just not even see how that's possible? It's like what we're called to is childlike faith. And as a father, I can set a scenario before my kids and there's three, there's only three logical explanations as far as how we can get out of the situation until you ask a kid. And then it's like a king be like, well, what if I swallowed dynamite and it didn't go off yet? We'd get out of here. I could blow this place up. What? You'd, you'd be dead then. Like, that doesn't help. And why would you have, where would you get dynamite? Like, that's not logical. But you ask a kid, something's like, oh, it can happen. Oh, daddy, if, if you drove fast enough, you could probably, you know, just go through the river without sinking instead of going over that bridge. What? I mean, you don't, and so many times as we mature, we lose that crazy, random imagination that children have. As adults, we practically do. And I'm afraid that the longer we remain Christians, that we lose that crazy, my God can do anything imagination. And that's what I see Jesus calling Peter to here. That's what I see him calling us to today, individually and as a church. Man, let's believe that Jesus can do anything. The impossible the absurd, what seems to be ridiculous. Let's, let's not put our limits. <laughs> let's not put our, our limitations on him. It's not fair. He doesn't have them. So as we consider this, I pray that we have a desire for faith, for childlike, crazy, just out of the ordinary faith in Christ. And I, I, I would give to you today three things that I believe are faith builders to get us going in that direction. Give, ask, and pray. Three things to get us going on this trek of faith towards greater faith in Jesus. First is give. Give to the work of the kingdom. Support the work of the Lord. Jesus gives here, and he provides the tax as as a way of not causing others to stumble, but it still supports the temple. Jesus was faithful even in doing so to support the temple. If Jesus supports the temple, we should too. And it's not a burden, it's an offering. We freely give. It's not a tax that's required. It's freely given because of how generous Christ has been for us, how generous the Holy Spirit is to us, how generous the Father is to us in giving us Jesus' his Son. And so support the, the kingdom, support this church? Are you living in faith in this area? Practically. Does your giving say that you trust in the Lord or trust in your bank account? We need to ask ourselves 
these questions continually. So that's give. Second is ask. Ask God for what you need. Ask him and trust him to provide it. Ask him. And then pray. Pray specifically for God to help you trust him more and more and have greater faith and belief that he's able. For me, for this particular, this third one, this pray application, for me, it's specifically to pray that the limits that I place on him will be removed more and more. It's like, man, I need this to come off. I need this to come off. Like I realize more and more just the limitations, the, the, the narrow paradigm I have for God to move my life and, and supply is so, I mean, it's like a tightrope. And let's give him a, an avenue. Let's, let's remove these limitations from him. And this takes, I believe, prayer, asking him to move in us so that we can release these limitations from him. Pray also asking Jesus to allow you the needed grace to follow him even when it seems absurd and counterintuitive. Go on fishing to find money. Like that we would have faith not to say that's ridiculous, but to obey and go and find the coin. Even when there's a great need that hasn't been met yet, and you think it needs to be met, focusing in, praying, asking him to give you faith to believe that you're getting exactly what you need from him, even though it doesn't look like it in the moment. Have faith in Jesus. He can provide in a number of ways. Trust him, even when it makes zero sense to do so. With faith, nothing is impossible. He supplies. He isn't limited. Faith in him, that's what changes any situation. Any situation, any mountain, any obstacle, it practically changes things. Faith in Jesus. This week I received a phone call from a friend of mine, um, a friend of many of you all in this room. Um, I received a phone call from someone who uh, was part of the Axis Church in the early years, and uh, we coached basketball like in elementary kids' age. Uh, we had a lot of fun together. And uh, he called me. Uh, he's living in Oregon now, and he said, uh, through a lot of moaning and um, weeping, and like just, it was a hard phone call to hear the content as well as just literally to hear what he's saying. And uh, he said, Man, I just want you to know that my two month old boy died in my arms today, and uh, I want you to pray for us, and I want, he's, well, first he said, thank you for praying for us. So his first things he said after he said that his son died in his arms, he said, uh, continue to pray for us, and I, I moaned out loud, like, I, like, it was effortless, it like happened and kind of startled me because I don't, I don't moan like that. But just that, that weight just hit me. I, I, was, I felt it. And then he said, Jeremy, I know that God is good. And man, I just, I don't have a paradigm for that, man. Like, I feel like I'm a faithful person, you know, in a lot of ways. But when you experience something that only God ex experiences completely, like in the losing of a son, like he lost his son. Like my friend lost his son in his arms I'm, and he still says, God is good. And I just kept thinking, man, this man makes God look alive. Like, God is alive. 
I've seen him comfort someone going through the death of their son and, and he is changing his heart in the midst of that situation. He's alive. He says, I know that God is good. And I know that he was glorified through, his, through my son's life and I know that he's going to be glorified through his death. I'm just blown away. He said, he's given us exactly what we need when we need it. And then he blew my mind even more. He said, and there's already redemption. This happened two hours before he called me. Like this was the, he called me as he was walking around the hospital grounds on this walking trail that the doctor told him, just get out of here. We'll take care of this. Y'all just go out and walk. And he's breathing as he's walking with his wife and talking with me. He's breathing heavy and he's telling me there's redemption already in this. I'm like, how do you have that poise? Like I was prepared to try to like comfort him and like, but he's comforting me through his suffering. He said, there's already redemption. There's, there's already children that are going to be able to live because they're going to be able to take some of our son's heart tissue and valves and be able to donate them to other children who are in need of this surgery. And they're going, he's going to cause others to live. I'm just like, I mean, of course the gospel is playing through my mind, but I'm still thinking of this. Man, how in the world can this man stay so poised he had faith in God. He had faith in Jesus, and he was unmoved. Like, practically, he stood firm, and he was making God look beautiful and glorious and real as the one who does see us through these storms, who can move mountains. I mean, he's seeing with such clarity as he goes through this trial. And I face so much less, and yet it's so foggy for me. Let's continue to pray for faith. Not faith necessarily just like my friend because there's greater faith even. But let's pray for faith to believe that, that God can intervene and use and, and that he can be good enough even in the midst of want and suffering and death that we can still say God is good. He will take care of us. This is what Jesus is wanting out of these disciples. This is what Jesus is wanting from us. And it's not in trying harder. It's in believing more and asking for him to give us the ability to believe more of who he is and what he's done, what he's accomplished for us. And our hope and identity and purpose flows all from that unshakable foundation. Your health is going to deteriorate. Your money is going to run out. Your home will burn, be sold. Somebody else will live in it in 100 years if it's still standing. Don't place your, your hope in these things. Place your hope in Jesus who will not disappoint you. He will not disappoint you. He is the rock, the unshakable, the untakeable rock that you can build your existence on and your life on. He's good for it. Believe him today. Ask him for faith to believe. The demon-possessed boy at the beginning of the story today, the demon-possessed boy, the father that, that brought this one to the disciples and ultimately to Jesus, he said to Jesus, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. As recorded in Mark, I think, chapter 9. Pray that. Say, Lord, I believe. I want to believe. I, I, I have faith. I want to have more faith. Help me have faith. Man, church, individuals, let's pray, believing, asking for faith. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this incredible reminder of your faithfulness and your goodness and your limitlessness to take care of us and provide for us 
all that we need. Lord, would you give us the ability to trust you? Would you give us the ability to, to do what it is you ask of us, even if it seems absurd? Lord, would you give us the faith needed to sell the field in order to gain the treasure, to sell all to be able to gain the field and have your treasure? Lord, to have you, would we have the reckless faith of a little child that doesn't put these limitations, but we, our faith has an imagination, Lord, that, that believes you can do anything. You are a superhero. You are limitless. There is no kryptonite. Lord, you, you, there is absolutely nothing you cannot do. Lord, would we believe that in our situation today, in the mountain that we're facing, whether it be health or financially or, or spiritually, relationally, socially, or whatever it might be, Lord, whatever it might be job-related or whatever, would we not place these limitations on you and would we believe that you can work in and through whatever the situation might be and will we just trust you, trust you especially as we don't see how it's going to actually work out in the end, that we would trust you to go one step at a time. Lord, care for us this way. Give us this faith. Would we be a faithful people? God, do this work in our church, in our hearts, in our families, and with our friends. Lord, help us believe you. God, move in our hearts. Thank you for taking care of us and providing for us. In Christ's name, amen.